I love that song. That's beautiful. Is that new, Brian? Really? In the last uh, service, I mentioned how much Brian means to me. <clears throat> you know, it's wonderful to have someone who stimulates your thinking and kind of draws you into the presence of the Lord. And, uh, you know, I spend all week trying to get ready that the Lord might use what I've prepared to say to speak to you, but he often adds and compliments everything that is on my heart when I come in through the things that, that Brian shares. And it draws me even deeper. And sometimes um, it's just the right thing I need to hear. So uh, I do appreciate what the Lord does when we come into his house and come, come together in his name to, uh, to learn, to worship. And this morning... I want us to look at Jesus as a, as a boy. We have one, one real episode, one snapshot of Jesus uh, between the first week, his birth and visit to the temple when he was uh, circumcised and uh, dedicated to the Lord. And then before his public ministry, we have this one episode right here in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. So if you will turn, if you haven't already, I'd like to read it for us. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group that they were traveling with, they went a day's journey, and when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, uh, they did not find him. And so they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to, to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. What kind of child was Jesus? This is the picture we get 
from the Bible, from the New Testament, from Luke. It really is an intriguing question if you think about it. The Son of God who commanded the sea and the wind, who multiplied the loaves and fishes, who walked on water and raised the dead. What kind of a child was he? I mean, I'm a dad now. I've got grown-up kids with the children of their own. And I've thought about it before. Like I'm thinking, mom's cooking dinner, and uh, she gets distracted, and she burns dinner. And so Jesus sees how distressed mom is and how hungry everybody is, so he just fixes it. Because even though he's just a child, he's got that kind of power. I mean, he's a real superhero. That's the way the early church thought about Jesus. We have records. We have stories. We have accounts of Jesus as a child. The records we have are 150 to 250 years later that have survived. Who knows how long the stories have been around? Probably as long as people have imagined, what is it like to have a child who's the son of God? Because the Bible leaves us to wonder, except for this one story, this one account that we have right here that we just read together. But in these other accounts, kind of like my whimsical story, we get pictures of Jesus as they imagine the Son of God would be as a young, precocious child. For example, in the infancy gospel of Thomas, just to give you one, they imagine Jesus as a regular kid with power that he can't quite handle. For example, at five years, Jesus is uh, by a a brook, and he is fashioning little sparrows out of the clay of the brook. But the problem is, it is the Sabbath, and you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. And an elder spots little Jesus, and so he chastises Jesus. And Jesus just claps his hands, and the sparrows, if you will, the evidence flies away. There's another story in the infancy gospel of Thomas where Jesus is playing on the roof with a friend. Kids do that during the day. And they're roughhousing and playing on this, these flat-roofed houses of the Mediterranean world. You've seen probably pictures of them, kind of like adobe-looking. And in their play, the, the playmate loses his balance, tumbles to the ground, and dies because of the fall. And the neighbors see it, and in the story, Jesus is acting out again, and they blame him for pushing the friend off the roof and causing the child's death. So Jesus leaps off the roof because, you know, 
He can do that sort of thing without getting hurt. And he lands beside the young boy. He raises the boy to life so that the little boy can defend Jesus against the false charge of pushing him off the roof. Pretty cool, huh? Well, that is the fiction. And I share some of the fiction with you because it puts in relief the difference between an imagined Jesus and the real Jesus. And it helps us to see something very clearly about Jesus that we really do need to see. And we see it right here in Luke's account of Jesus as a young boy at 12. This is the Bible's version of Home Alone. But unlike Kevin McAllister, Jesus isn't left behind. Jesus stayed behind. And there's a big difference. It's quite clear. It's made very clear in Luke's gospel. Jesus deliberately stayed behind in verse 43. You see, it's not Jesus who's lost. It's his parents. And when they find Jesus, he is in the temple. There are two things that help us, two coordinates, if you will, that help us navigate what Luke is helping us to see here about Jesus as a young boy of 12. And the first one is in verse 42, Jesus' age. Jesus was 12. That's the year of preparation. That's the year of coming of age from boyhood to manhood, from the private realm of family to the public realm of manhood in Jewish tradition. Joseph would have been preparing Jesus for bar mitzvah. Bar is Aramaic for Hebrew, ben. Ben means son in Hebrew. Bar is the Aramaic equivalent. Bar mitzvah, son of commandment. When a child becomes subject to and individually responsible to God, as, if you will, uh, a responsible person, an adult. When, if you will, a child no longer can say, well, I blame it on my parents or I blame it on others. Now the child as it were, is independently dependent upon God in a personal relationship. It's really a beautiful thing. And that is where Jesus is at in his life when his family makes this trip, this annual trip, this customary trip from Galilee a three days, roughly a three days travel, if everything, you know, if the traffic isn't too bad, a three days trip from Ga Galilee, Nazareth, to the great city to travel to go up to Jerusalem, which literally was at a higher elevation, but also because it is a sacred place. And so you always go up to Jerusalem and you always, when you leave, you always go down from Jerusalem. That's the first point that I want us to appreciate about what Luke is uh, revealing to us here about Jesus. Jesus' age, he's 12. 
in preparation. And Joseph, Joseph, remember in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we're introduced to Joseph. And Joseph, we're told, is a devout man. He is a just man. He's a man who responds to God the Father. In fact, in a dream, when he is distressed and troubled over news about Mary being pregnant, and they are betrothed, that's like legally married, and he didn't know this was coming, in a dream, God speaks to to Joseph. He delivers a a personal message, message to Joseph. He says, Joseph, do this for me. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he does. That's what happens when you become a son of commandment. When you independently, individually become responsible to God, you interact personally. It's not mediated through others. You yourself become accountable to God for your relationship with him. The second thing I want us to appreciate is Jesus' own explanation in verse 49. His mother comes in. Now, you recall Jesus is in the temple. He has stayed behind. And as was customary uh, in the precincts of the temple, they would teach and inquire, and there was a, a give and take in seeking and expressing knowledge of God. And Jesus is among the teachers. And it says he's listening to them and he's inquiring of them. And uh, it says they're they're amazed. I can imagine the surprise as uh, they interact with Jesus. They're engaged with him, Jesus asking questions. And they in turn asking questions of him and he responding, and they enthused and excited about this young 12-year-old's passion and interest in God the Father. And so when Mary comes in, she says, your father and I, why have you done this to us? Your, your father and I have been searching for you. And uh, the expression is, It's been torture. And every parent here can understand that. Three days, if we're to understand Luke correctly, probably a day's travel before they realize Jesus isn't among them. You've seen enough Westerns to know that covered wagon train usually is just uh, lumbering along slowly, and there are people walking beside the horses that pull the wagons. And that would be kind of an analogy, a metaphor for this group of people that they would travel in a caravan to ward off or minimize the chance of being raided or attacked or robbed. And they imagine Jesus is just playing with some of the other kids in this entourage. Uh, But about a day's out, 
uh, travel back. They realize he's gone. They look all around. Nobody's seen him. They travel back a day, and I'm imagining a day in Jerusalem, but maybe it was five days in, in all. I don't know. Maybe it's three days in Jerusalem that they searched for him. But in my own opinion, it's probably just a total of three, and they find him, and Mary says, this has been agony. This has been torture, Jesus. Why have you done this? And Jesus, just as he has been doing with the teachers, responds with questions. Jesus says, why were you looking for me? And then he answers with another question. He says, uh, and I'll, I'll put this in, Plain language, because it isn't a question, and it, it's in a question that expects a positive or yes answer from his parents. He says, uh, isn't it clear to you that I had to be in the house of my father? And the, as I say, the question implies, yes, it is clear to us. But we're told by Luke, they did not quite comprehend. They didn't, it says, they couldn't put it together. They couldn't quite put together what Jesus was saying to them. Well, I want us to understand that in verse 49, these are the very first recorded words of Jesus. And they are to the effect, I had to be in my father's house. Do you know what Jesus' favorite words are? My father. Of all the words that Jesus says that are words that are given to us in the New Testament, of all the words that are given to us that are recorded of Jesus' teachings, Father occurs over 200 times on the lips of Jesus. Father. And 47 times, 47 times, my Father. That's amazing. When you think of all the words that he could have uttered that have been recorded, that have been passed on, Father is his favorite word. Do you know that in the Old Testament, Father of a relationship only occurs 15 times of God. 15 times, 47 of 200, my father, in the New Testament. First words recorded, favorite words. A relationship with God the Father. Do you know that the word father that Jesus uttered as it is related to us, is even more intimate than our word father, which is rather formal. It's the word Abba in Aramaic. Of all we know about the use of this word Abba, not the singing group from Nordic parts, but this Aramaic expression for relationship with father, it's a very intimate expression. Uh, it's a, it, it's a, an expression of familiarity. 
Scholars tell us that it should be translated something like Papa or Daddy. I know in my family, I, there are people who feel uneasy around me. I, I don't know why. My wife says I have a stern look. Do you think that's true? I just want to tell you again, I mean, there is just a carnival going on inside of me all the time. But sometimes my wife says you have a stern look. People can be intimidated by you. I have no idea what this is about. This is not what it looks like from the inside out. But because of that, I guess, and sometimes because you're the pastor and, and, you know, all these other superficial things, people feel uneasy, so they, they, they're formal. They don't invade your space. They don't, you know, act like they know you when they don't yet know you. They look for signals that it's okay to come closer, right? And they, and they people call me pastor, which to me, I never want anybody to feel odd about calling me pastor, pastor John, etc. But I, I was not born a pastor. I'm still getting used to the whole idea. I'm just me, and my name is John. But you see, take your father. Maybe some of you don't have a real intimate familiarity with your own father. And in, in his workplace or his professional life, just like people sometimes have a sense of formality with me, they have a formality with your father, and yet that's... That's not the way you approach maybe your father. In fact, you maybe don't even call him father. You just call him daddy or papa. You see, if you can get this, what I'm trying to demonstrate, then you're getting the privilege that you and I have with the creator, the God of the universe, through Jesus Christ. And what was so special about his relationship with that God that he could call him Abba. And that Jesus introduced his followers to the same God and the same intimacy as Abba. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. You know, they no doubt saw this vibrant spiritual life that he had with the Father. The, the Gospels record those occasions when they looked for him and they found him alone with the Father. And when they asked him, teach us to pray, how did it begin? Father. In Luke 11.9, that's the first word. 11.2, excuse me, Father. In Matthew 6.9, it's our Father. We believe that behind the use of Father is this intimate expression. Because it's not exclusive to Jesus do you realize that Paul, for example, in his letter to the Galatians from chapter 3, verse 24 to chapter 4, verse 6, and I'll just kind of summarize the gist of it. In the Mediterranean world, 
families often used babysitters of their children. Uh, sometimes they had more responsibilities and they were like tutors. Uh, our word pedagogue comes from that very Greek word to describe the babysitter, uh, the custodian, uh, the guardian. And Paul is saying, we're no longer under babysitters. We've come of age. We're grown-ups now. We're children of inheritance. He's describing the babysitter as the law. He says, when we lived under the law, under that babysitter, we were not heirs. We were not responsible enough to take care of ourselves. We had to be in the custody of another. But in Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, when God sent his son, he's taking a, he's from being babysitted to co-heirs responsible men and women of faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, the proof of that is that God has poured out his spirit on our hearts, an indication that we are adopted, that we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're now heirs in full responsibility through faith in this personal relationship with God. He says that Holy Spirit is poured out on us, and what does the Spirit say? Abba. Abba. And then, of course, the more formal father comes in, at least formal in our use of the language. How you say it, what your mood is, the expression, all those things come into place. But the point is, we are full-fledged, come-of-age, sons and daughters of commandment, through faith in Jesus Christ, with intimate access to the creator of the universe. How do we treat this privilege? How do we cherish it? We, we can, you know, you can listen to me. I can study about it. We can have it up here cerebrally, but how does it get down into our heart and affect the day-to-day emotions and decisions of our lives. I think that's what Jesus is calling our attention to, even as a young boy, just through his own example, putting the Father first. Isn't that, isn't that the powerful distinction between fiction where we, we try to imagine, wow, what would it be like to have all that power, you know? Be some young kid, <laughs> hey, having it all, son of God. That is, that's just our human imagination. But the picture we get is of a 12-year-old son who's so aware of God in his life and has a passion, a desire, a yearning for him that he chooses to stay behind and learn more. He's on a quest because of that intimate relationship characterized by the way he used 
I mean, when you use father, father, father all the time, when it's your favorite word, when it's what sets you apart from our silly imagination, that's your orientation. That's, your, that's the compass of your life. Do you ever get lost? It's your orientation. When you're bewildered, when your emotions don't match, you know, your training or all kinds of things, life throws you a curve. You're upset. You're, you're acting in ways that you embarrass yourself. But it's like there's this invisible force or power or draw called selfishness or sin. We know what that's like. Some, I know what this is like. I've lived the last 40 years of my life trying to live for Christ, grow in my knowledge, discipline that comes from putting the Father first, and yet I can still be thrown off on any occasion by my own selfishness or by things that happened to me that my training didn't prepare me for. And that's the moment of faith. That's the moment when the commitments and the orientation of our life kicks in. It's going to be New Year's on Thursday, and lots of people make resolutions. We have a recurring resolution in Jesus Christ that never gets old, that never, we never outgrow. Put the Father first. And we do that because of Jesus. Because he put him first. Do you know that in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, one of my favorite passages of Scripture continues to inspire and challenge me. I'm going to give you like a 30-second sermon. Jesus is, you know talking to the crowds that are following him. And basically, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I want you to understand, um, it's not easy. He says, you have to love your enemies. He says, you have to do good to those who mistreat you. I mean, if you're going to follow me, this is where I'm going to take you. He says, you have to bless those who curse you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, you have to turn the other cheek. He says, you can't just do it the way everybody else is doing it anymore and follow me. He says, this is the way you live your life without me. If others lend to you, you lend to them in return. If, if others love you, you love them in return. If others are good to you and bless you, you're good to them and bless them in return. That's the way you live already. But if you want to follow me, then you have to follow the one that I follow. He says, I follow the Father. And in verse 35 and 36, of the sixth chapter of Luke, he says, if you do good to those who mistreat you, if, if you love those who hate you, if you bless and you don't curse, 
those who do injustice to you, he says, you're going to be doing what your father in heaven does. You're going to become children of the most high. Your reward will be great because that's what my father is like, and he's the one I follow. He's already on his way at 12. He's growing physically, we're told right here. He grew. But his spiritual desire and hunger for the Father outpaces his physical growth. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John opens with this beautiful meditation for the first 18 verses. You know the beginning. I mean, consider the cosmic majesty of the Gospel of John in its opening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, that is tabernacled, pitched his tent, bivouacked among us, set up, set up an abode right in our midst, right amongst us. And we beheld his glory Glory as the only begotten of the Father. Full of what? Power? That's our fascination. That's our intoxication. No, full of grace and truth. Going all the way back to Exodus 36, 4, when grace and truth were the apex of what God revealed to Moses on Sinai when, as it were, he could not behold his glory. God turned his back. When he passed by him, it wasn't what he saw. It's what was associated with the very name Yahweh of God, ending with these two words, chesed ve'emeth, which is Loving kindness or loyal love and faithfulness. Translated in the Gospel of John 1.14, grace and truth. In Jesus was the very character and nature of God. And then in the very end of this meditation in the Gospel of John, verse 18, there's one word that ends it all. One word. And yet in English, this is how we translate it. He has made him known. The word with God, was God, became flesh, dwelt among us. In the end, he has made him known. We have this intimate relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ in which we are so familiar with him, have access to him, that we can use the equivalent 
or more importantly than a word, understand that we have a relationship with the Father that is as intimate as calling another person our Father Daddy or Papa. And it oriented Jesus' life. And it ought to orient ours. Putting the Father first. Putting the Father first is a source and expression of spiritual maturity. You're not washed here and there or turned around. You put a priority on this great privilege and you want to learn more. You have a passion in your heart to, to grow deeper to become, if you're a man, a boy, become a man, if you will, or a woman or a girl, to be a woman of God, standing on your own, not dependent on others. Even as Jesus wasn't wanting to be dependent on his natural parents, he wanted to be dependent on the Father. There's a point in which you grow up in your spiritual life where you can't wait for everybody else to lead you to where you need to go. you got to go there on your own. Where you don't come to church because you have to be entertained or if entertainment isn't good, that you don't make something out of it. If you want to be entertained, you can go just about anywhere. And why come to church at all? And there are plenty of churches you can go to and hear a great story. It may not be out of the Bible. It may not draw you deeper into your knowledge and commitment and dependence upon God the Father, but that's okay. It'll make you feel good about yourself because that's what our whole world is about, but not with Jesus. Not with him. And like he said, if you're going to follow me, You've got to get serious about some of this stuff because this isn't just an add-on. This isn't an extra. This isn't an accoutrement. This is about everything. It'll significantly reorder your relationships just as it did with Jesus. Wives, Children will not be as important as the father. Or for the wife's part, the husband, children, others will not be as important. Friends will not be as important as the father. But here's the thing. When you and I put the father first, wives become more important. Husbands, more important. Children, more important. Every other relationship, more important, because that's the place God puts on that person's life. And there'll be significant responsibilities, spiritual maturity, significant reordering of our lives, and sobering responsibilities. It says in the last uh, verse 51, Jesus went down, which is the way they did when they left Jerusalem. It didn't mean that they were depressed. They got down. No, they went down. 
And what does it say? It says, Jesus behaved for his parents. He obeyed them. Jesus was under authority. That's, that's evident even in the Gospels. It's especially evident in the Gospel of John. And it should be evident in our lives that the Father comes first. And when he does, we'll have no problem serving others and loving them as we ought if we're going to follow Jesus. When he says, follow me, love your enemies, do good to those who mistreat you, bless those who curse you. There's power there, real power. Not this power that jumps off roofs and raises people from the dead. This is power that makes the world stand up and say, that is real, that is true. That's a power I've never seen before. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. If you want to pray with me or any of the pastoral staff, elders, or their wives, God's spoken to you this morning. If you want to dedicate, depend on the Father in some greater way and pray about that, make that decision. A little more real because you share it with someone else, we invite you to come. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're really missing out on everything. I hope you change that today. And if you want to talk to me about that or someone else, I invite you to come. Let me pray for us. God, Father, Papa, what a comfort. We give you thanks. Thanks for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the power and the work of your spirit in our lives. You never leave us nor forsake us. And we praise and thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.